0: When I was struggling with my anxiety and panic attacks, I I learned about picturing your feeling as though it were a cloud in the sky passing you by. And so that's what feelings are, you know, they, they come and they go. And you can imagine that your whatever hard, difficult feeling you're experiencing is on a cloud up in the sky. It's coming closer to you, and then it's over you, and then it eventually passes by and kind of fades off into to nowhere. And then, you know, another cloud comes along into your, into your being, and it might be a different emotion, but that feelings, they never stay very long and they're temporary and, and they change. They can change quickly, they can change slowly, but they always change. And that really helped me in my process of understanding my feelings and, and quieting my anxiety.
1: Hello my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gurk Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on the show is to invite the world class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. I have a request for you this time, if you have been listening to this podcast for some time, and if you find it useful, please help me in spreading the word about this little show by telling one person in your friends and family, and that would mean the world to me. And today's guest is Beth Tyson. Beth is a psychotherapist, childhood grief and trauma expert, and a children's book author. She earned several years of experience as a clinician working with children and families and as a teaching assistant in the graduate program for counseling psychology at Eastern University. She uses her expertise in childhood trauma to help families and organizations operate from a trauma-sensitive and healing-centered approach. She helps her clients understand the biological impact of trauma on the brain and autonomic nervous system. Beth is a mental health educator who uses trauma-responsive models to implement the skills necessary for the emotional well-being of children impacted by trauma and other adverse childhood experiences. She provides educational training to schools, workplaces, non-profit organizations, caregivers, families, and among others. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Beth Tyson. Hey Beth, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me today.
1: Thanks for your time and it has taken us more than a year to connect and do this podcast recording. So I thought I will start with one of your recommended books. And the book name is Alan Cohen's book, A Daily Dose of Sanity. You have posted about this book on your Instagram page. So I thought this could be a good starting point for us. So why do you recommend this book?
0: I love this book because it has so much wisdom in each of the short stories that he shares. It's basically like a daily snippet, you know, a short story that teaches you something meaningful about life, about the world and inspires you in some positive way and it's quick and easy to read. So if it's make it part of your morning habit, which is what I like to do. It's just a nice way to start off your day with something positive and an inspiration. And his stories are really interesting. And it's always like an uh, aha moment for me when I read his, his his insights.
1: Could you share any one of the inspirations that have impacted you the most?
0: Hmm. Let's see if I can think of one of the top. His, In general, a lot of what he talks about is being true to yourself and 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 recognizing when you're off path like off the path of your of your true self and i think that can happen so easily for me and so so i can't think of a specific example from the book but in general he always gives me a lot of reminders to come back to myself and to check in with myself about what i'm doing and how i'm moving forward
1: is there any other book that have impacted you so far in your life?
0: Yes. I just read a really great book and I've been wanting to share about it. It's called 4,000, wait, 4,000 weeks. Yeah. 4,000 weeks. And it is about, it's called time management for mortals is like the subtitle. And it's all about life and how we only have on average about 4,000 weeks to live. And how we wrap our minds around the finitude of life and the existential anxiety that that can create in us and you know what what to do to make good use of the 4000 weeks that we're given and that has shifted my perspective so much because You know, sometimes life tends to feel arduous and long and like you're kind of rushing to to get to the next point, to get to the next thing. And this book really reminded me of how little time we actually have on earth compared to history, (laughs) you know, that we're really just a short, a short blip on that spectrum from the beginning of time to present day. And it just makes you reflect on what you want your life to mean and what you want to leave behind when you're no longer here.
1: Have you taken any actions in your life from this book?
0: I would say really trying to enjoy the moment with my daughter more. She's she's six and, you know, she can be, she is a feisty little six-year-old. You know, we we have a lot in common in that <laughs> way. And, you know, so we really sometimes like I find myself getting stuck in a pattern where it's like, oh my gosh, all I'm doing is reprimanding you and, you know, trying to get you to listen to me. And it can start to feel just exhausting as a parent. And, you know, when I, while I've been reading this book, it's made me stop in some of these moments and just say, you know, this, this doesn't really matter right now. You know, what's important is that we enjoy each other's company. You know, this, this tiny little thing, I don't need to have it all figured out. I don't need to raise her into the perfect, you know, adult, <laughs> I need to just do my best and hope that that's enough and kind of take some of the pressure off myself so I can enjoy some of these moments more deeply with my daughter.
1: The question that I want to ask you is, which I have not asked anyone in the last one year. So how would your six-year daughter describe what do you do for a living?
0: How would I describe it?
1: How would she describe?
0: Oh, how would she describe? Interesting. Yeah. So, we actually just had a conversation around the dinner table about this. We were on a family ski vacation last week. It was so, it was such an impactful conversation because somebody at the table, one of my family members said to the kids, there's three kids, young children, and said, What do you know? How can you describe what mommy or daddy do? And so, we went around and asked each of the kids like what their parents do and listen to what their explanation was. And my daughter said therapy, which is great. Now, I don't know how much she understands about what therapy actually is (laughs) at six, but she she said it right off the bat. She's like, she does therapy. And the way I explain it to her is just that I try to help people understand their thoughts and feelings and behaviors and take care of their brain. And I just keep it really simple like that for her, but it is. It's it's interesting because what came from that conversation was all the adults went around the table and said what they would have done if they weren't doing what they're doing now. Like if they could have followed some dream and there was no restrictions, there was no money was not an issue, you know, like your dream job, if if all things aligned. And so everybody had a different answer except for me and my sister-in-law, which was really cool to, to see everybody's alternative career choices.
1: Did you always want to be a therapist?
0: I did not realize I wanted to be a therapist until I was in my 30s. Yeah.
1: And how did you realize you wanted to be a therapist?
0: So I... In college, I was studying at Shippensburg University and I was in like my sophomore year and I still hadn't declared a major. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I ended up declaring a communications major, which I enjoyed, but I had to then declare a minor. And my advisor was like, well, you already have like all the credits. You only need like one more class to have a minor in psychology. And I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, you know, those were the the electives and like the classes I could take on my own. And I didn't realize that I had already chosen a bunch that were psychology classes enough to have a minor in it. So I knew then that I had a, a deeper interest in psychology. But it wasn't until my mom passed away that I really realized I wanted to become a psychologist. So when I was 26, my mom died suddenly in her sleep one night. And that changed my whole world. That was a big turning point for me. And, um, and so from there, through my healing process and through therapy and inner reflection, inner, inner searching, I knew that I couldn't stay in like a corporate job forever. Like it was just felt soul sucking to me. And I, it just it just went against like all my natural instincts in life. And so I had known I didn't want to be in corporate America, which was like what I was in, but I didn't know what to do. But when my mother passed away, I realized that I, I just wanted to have a, a way to help other people through the pain and the grief that I went through. And so I ended up going back to school at 32 and getting my graduate degree in clinical counseling and loving every second of it. Like as soon as I started taking a class, because at first, you know, you're like, okay, is this the right choice? You're oh, well, at least for me, I question myself a lot. I have a lot of doubts. So I knew for sure for sure when I was taking my classes and just loving everyone and looking forward to. Going to class, even though it was at night after working full time and writing papers. And sure, it wasn't always fun, but I knew I was on the right path. Like, I just knew it. So that's what brought me into counseling. Yeah.
1: I have so many follow-up questions on (laughs) this for you. So what were you doing in corporate America at the time?
0: Sure. So at the time, I was working for a company... PNC Investments. A PNC is a big bank. Most pe- I think it's in most states. I know it's in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I guess it's across the country. And I was working there, financial, what would you call me? I guess I was like an office manager in a way. And I worked with the director of that division, supporting the other financial advisors, with the things that they, you know, needed help with and just, you know, planning events and kind of like administrative work, I guess. Yeah. Administrative work. And before that I had had other administrative jobs and I had a marketing job at one point. So I kind of, I just was floating around. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I, I thought the only way to make money was to work in a big
1: company and I just, I was miserable. I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So as a listener to this podcast, if somebody is thinking they may not be sure about what is the next step in their life and they are struggling to find out what they want to do. So what do you recommend for people to identify the next best steps for them?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the most important thing to do is what one of the things that I started to do was pay attention to those natural instincts, like those, the things you're naturally drawn to in your life. What do you find yourself reading about? What do you find yourself watching on TV and feeling really enthralled by or watching online? What, what do you want to learn more about? What articles do you always seem to be drawn to? You know, what, what inspires you? What really, gets, what really gets you going? And kind of that can give you a direction just by noticing what you're naturally interested in and pulled towards. So I always recommend that people start there and just look at what they've already experienced and, and what they are being drawn to.
1: And uh, you mentioned that you got into psychology and therapy after your mom died. Yes. If that unfortunate event may not have happened, who do you think you would be at this present moment?
0: That is a really hard question, (laughs) but a great one. Hmm. You know, before my mom died, I was really uncertain about getting married and having children. I really didn't see myself maybe doing those things. And once I had her, once I had the loss of her, everything came into clarity for me. Like it was like all of a sudden, what mattered became. Crystal, crystal clear to me, and that was that I knew I wanted to have a family, and that I wanted to be a mom someday.
1: And that how was, have you dealt yeah, through the pain and grief of your mom dying?
0: It has not been easy. I I grieve for her still. It's, it's it's a lifelong process that will be with me until I'm gone. And in the beginning, of course, the grief was very acute and very painful and impacted my mental health. I I was struggling really bad with anxiety and panic attacks, depression. Luckily, I was able to get help and, and I did and was able to move through, you know, the grief with the help of support from family and friends who were there for me and and therapy. But really the most healing thing for me was finding meaning in her death. And I think that's why I was so, because her death was so senseless. She was young. She was healthy. She, she took care of herself. She was active. She was eating healthy. She did all the right things. You know, she took care of her body. And so for her to die suddenly in her sleep, out of nowhere, one night without any warning, it just seemed so senseless, and I knew that I had to. I don't know if I knew it, but I felt that I wanted to make something positive come from it all, um, and that's why I I was like, I need to get out of this corporate job that's I'm not enjoying it and do something more purposeful, something that's. That really means something to me because life is short and it can be over in an instant. And I became so aware of that at a young age, you know, in my, my late 20s that it propelled me forward in a way instead of setting me back because I, I now knew and had an understanding of how precious life is that a lot of my peers didn't have and and that really made me want to go after my dreams, go do the thing that I thought was meaningful and purposeful. And so I really don't know where I would be. I may not have a child. I may not <laughs> have my career in psychology if it if it wasn't for her passing. Yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing and I'm so sorry to hear about your mom.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: You seem to me someone very resilient. You gave a positive meaning after that incident, which is not very easy to be like that. Were you always like that in all the situations in your life?
0: I think so. The way I look at it now, you know, looking back from my 40s, I can say that I had so many small, I guess you could call them smaller adversities starting off from very early in my life and a series of losses that almost prepared me in a way to be able to handle the loss of my mom. Like, I think if I hadn't had those losses and those adversities leading up to her death, that her death would have been such a shock to me that I may not have been able to to find my strength. But because I had sort of built up this resiliency over time, I think that's that's what ultimately allowed me to be able to handle it and process through it and find what I call post-traumatic growth from that situation.
1: Do you feel comfortable right now to share any of those losses and adversities?
0: Yeah, sure. And thank you for asking it that way. It's a, it's a very Respectful way to ask. So yeah, so my parents divorced when I was two. And my dad lived in New York, and we lived in Maine. And so we were very disjointed from the beginning as a family. And although there was a lot of love and a lot of care, and we we always had the love and the, the care that we needed, that separation was a loss for for all of us. And I think oftentimes it doesn't get acknowledged in our culture. And I know that at my age, it was not acknowledged, not through any fault of my parents by any means, but just from a lack of awareness about the way people perceive young children as, as not being able to sense these things if they are so young and not being able, not being affected by things when they're younger. It's just kind of a cultural belief that I see. And so I, nobody ever had the the conversations with me that probably would have been helpful to explain what was going on, to check in with how I was feeling about things. You know, it just wasn't done back then. (laughs) It just wasn't, it wasn't a thing in the eighties, but, but, but nonetheless, you know, I, I didn't have a choice, but to, to overcome that, right? Like you just, you just do it. And so, and so we did. And then, you know, we had some moves. There was another father figure in my life from two to to about 11 years old so for 10 years of my life and when i was around 11 we moved from maine to new jersey and that relationship was ended so the second father figure was also a loss for me in a way that wasn't it wasn't death but it's what's called an ambiguous loss where the person's still alive but psychologically they're they're not in your life anymore or they're not present physically in your life anymore that that's what i meant to say they're not present physically in your life anymore but psychologically they're still present in your life. So I reversed that. <laughs> Sorry. And so, yeah, so that was another loss. And then for 9-11, my brother, who I was very close to, he worked in lower Manhattan and had actually just moved from the Twin Towers, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. And I thought he was there that day on nine, when 9-11 happened and the terrorist attacks that ensued. And so he was safe and he was able to make it out of New York City. But following that experience, he moved to California. And so that was, you know, like another, another loss that was not in the sense of death, but, you know, not having him nearby and not having his, his constant company and things like that was a loss for, for us again. So I feel like these things in a way you know, built up my resiliency over time to be able to sort of handle the biggest loss of all, which was my mother.
1: And during those times of losses and adversities, what was your self-talk? What was that inner voice telling you about? What voices were you hearing inside your heart and mind, if this question makes sense to you?
0: Yeah, you know, the Before my brother leaving, I don't think I had, like, I don't remember any inner dialogue. I know, I don't think I had the awareness then that I, that I have now or that I gained as I aged. I kind of just like lived and I didn't have a lot of self-reflection at that point. But as I grew and learned more over time about myself and became more self-aware, you know, I can kind of look back at things. I think I handled it with like a defensiveness, keeping people at a distance, you know, only letting them get so close hmm. kind of, you know, thing. So it was, I wasn't aware that I was having fearful thoughts about getting close to people, but it was in my behavior. So yeah, I think it was, it was a process of just feeling like, well, I don't want to lose somebody else. So I'm going to, I'll, keep you at a distance because you know, it's possible that you will no longer be here in my life and that would be too painful, you know? So but then when my brother moved, that I was able to be aware of my grief over that and to feel to feel sad about that and to be able to acknowledge that loss to myself, even though it was a good thing for him and, and he's happy out there and I'm happy for him to have moved out there. So it, it is an ambivalent feeling, right? Because it's like I was happy right. for him. I, I don't you know, I don't hold it against them. Everybody's got to live their life, but but yeah. And we have kept in touch and we have a great relationship today, but we've definitely, you know, lost time together as a family being so far away from each other.
1: So what have you done so far to reverse this behavior of avoidance? I, I believe we are talking about avoidance when you get so close to someone and they leave you for some reason, we feel threatened. We feel that maybe we are not good enough, people are leaving us, right? So how did you reverse your behavior to get closer and not feel intimidated by yeah. them getting closer?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe these things are lifelong, you know, I don't think I'll ever, well, maybe I will, but I don't know if you ever get to a point where you like arrive psychologically, you know, where it's like, okay, I have it all figured out, even as a therapist. I mean, I know that part of my my passion for psychology and my wanting to get into this field was to understand my own self and to uh, be able to understand other people because I just wasn't maybe able to make sense of it on my own. So I was like, "Well, let's get into, <laughs> let's go get a psychology degree and understand what the heck, what's going on here?" You know, I, I had trouble with relationships and choosing the wrong relationships, wanting people who didn't want me, not wanting people who did want me. You know, this whole like weird dynamic where it was like, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be with anybody who actually wanted to be with me. I wanted to be with the people who didn't. So I, that really made me want to understand myself better, which is where I figured out that, yeah, that just keeps you at a distance from everybody. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like I literally set myself up to not get close to anybody. So, so yeah, so that that's been a long process through therapy, through through trial and error. So like I'm I'm married now and and we have our daughter and my husband is the most persistent man on earth, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to push him away in every conceivable way possible. We've been together for 10 or 11 years now since we started dating and I mean, I I put him through the wringer. I I tried everything to to get him to leave, and he wouldn't. And so at certain point, I think there was like a tipping point. It was like, oh, all right, he's really not going anywhere. He really he really loves me for me, regardless of of how much I try to sabotage this. And and he sees it like he he sees that that's exactly what I'm doing. And so he was able to not take it personally somehow. (laughs) I don't know, but he's very, very persistent person. So yeah, I give him a lot of credit for being able to stick by me and stick through a lot of me working this out. And that's really where healing happens is in relationship to one another. I don't consider myself healed by any means. I, I still have my same pushing away behavior that patterns that dance that you get stuck into in relationships it's it's not gone, but we've learned how to navigate it and manage it and be aware of it in a way that you know works for us
1: and I'm curious to ask you about what structure do you have? in your relationship with your husband? What but, structures, what structures? What routines, what rituals do you have to maintain healthy relationship with your husband?
0: You know, our biggest thing is f- having fun together, like finding things to do where we have fun together. Cause that's, that's when we feel, well, at least that's when I feel the most connected to him. And I, I think that's when he feels the most connected too. So, you know, family time's a big thing. Holidays are big ritual times. We we both go crazy at holiday time, like decorating and celebrating and parties and this and that. So we have that that keeps us like throughout the year, sort of having that fun together, but also doing like physical fun things. So he loves to snowboard and I'm a skier. So, Early on in our relationship, we would go on these amazing ski trips with all of our friends in one house, you know, just having a blast together and... (laughs) you know, all that. Now, since we've had a child, that doesn't happen hardly ever. But now we go, now we've taught her to ski. And so this year, she's really, really, she's scaring the crap out of me going down the slopes, to be honest, but she's, she's great at it. But she wants to go fast and she wants to go over jumps and she just, she's super um, confident. And I'm like, slow down, slow down a little bit. But yeah, I think having fun, trying to have fun together amidst the monotony of life sometimes you know marriage is not always easy we we fight we we don't see eye to eye on everything we we have struggles and problems we go through rough times but something keeps us there even on those times when you want to give up and walk away which I'm I'll be honest I've had those moments and he's aware of that so I'm not sharing anything that's a secret but it's yeah it's just something something keeps you keeps you trying and keeps you at it and then you turn a corner and, and things get better again. And that's just the ups and downs of, I think, a lot of relationships.
1: Thank you for sharing all the intimate details, Beth. And I want to read one quote from you. A child who can show you his rage does not think you are an easy target. He thinks you are someone who won't abandon him. So what is the back story of this quote?
0: Sure. So while working... As a therapist, a trauma therapist within the child welfare system, I was an in-home counselor for foster children or children in foster care, children that were adopted and kinship families, which is grandparents raising their grandchildren. And oftentimes in these relationships, there was a lot of anger and rage coming from the children that the parents or the caregivers just couldn't make sense of and couldn't understand. And so a lot of my role was helping the parents understand how trauma impacts their brain and, and the reasons why the child's behavior seems so explosive and hard to deal with, and and what I came to learn through that process, and through those relationships, and through training, and through supervision—amazing supervision from my um, supervisor—was that somebody who can be really angry with you, on some level, trusts that you're not going anywhere, and that's kind of not a very obvious thing, I, I don't think for for people. It certainly wasn't for me until I learned it. But to show someone S- to show someone that you're angry actually means that you're getting closer to having a relationship than you think you are. Because, you know, if you are a child who has lived in foster care and you just assume people are going to abandon you, it's almost like, well, why even, why even try? You know, you kind of can just go avoidant, just put it put up your defenses just go quiet just you know fade to black and and mosey along but if you're showing that anger inside of you and releasing some of that rage then there's hope there there's there's a hope that that maybe once you get past this pain that you could have a relationship with that person so i would try and teach parents and caregivers who were raising children with trauma that it's actually a good sign that they're showing you they're real raw pain, it's not a sign that they hate you or that they don't want you in their life or that they don't love you or don't want to be with you. It's it's actually one of the first signs that they're beginning to trust you. So stay with it. Don't don't give up. You know, keep going. Be patient. I know it's hard, but it would it would be like a dropping of grain of hope into some of these families that were on the verge of having children removed from their homes and into another foster family. And so, yeah, that's that's the backstory behind that quote.
1: So when you speak to parents about their children's trauma, adversities, and uh, other issues, then how do you start the conversations with the parents? What do you tell them? What do you teach them in terms of practices and skills?
0: Sure. Well, first, you know, the first thing I always focused on is building trust with anybody in a therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. That is the trust is the most important part of any therapeutic relationship. And so really when I start therapy, I just want to listen and I want to, I want to give people an opportunity to feel seen and heard and felt in their experiences. I don't think of myself as an expert or a fixer or somebody that has you know that magic wand to come in and and wave and fix everybody i come in into it as you are the expert on your family you know them better than i do i'm i'm here to learn about you and to help guide you in areas that you may need a little support but i'm not here to tell you what to do with your family and so i think that really helps people be open to receiving some of the messages that I can give them that will actually really make a change in their family dynamics. And so, yeah, it starts with listening, with being a really good listener. And then from there, finding spots where they could they could use a little bit of guidance and this information on trauma. And so I've walked them through, you know, from the beginning talking about attachment, talking about if in early childhood, that healthy, secure attachment is not formed, how that it changes your brain and how how we all need that. It's a basic human need to have that attachment and connection. And if it's disrupted in some way, there's going to be challenges behaviorally and emotionally. So I really start there helping them see the psychology behind it all and the way it impacts your body. And from there things, you know they start to see it more clearly because a lot of this stuff, once somebody explains it, It's like, oh, now I see what's happening. It's kind of, you know, it's like, it's like none of us are taught this stuff, right? Unless you get a psychology degree or you listen to all your podcasts, which are amazing. I mean, unless you're really diving into this stuff, we're not taught it as children, as adults, as anybody, you have to go out and seek this information yourself. And, and some people, we just don't have the bandwidth for it. We're too busy putting out fires everywhere. So I, I understand the, the gap in understanding trauma and how it affects children, but, you know, we can get there. We can get there. And that's, that's my goal and that's my mission is to sort of close the gap between the amount of children who are experiencing trauma and the amount of, ch- and the amount of adults who have no idea how to care for a child with trauma. And so that's what I spend the majority of my time doing is trying to educate adults about childhood trauma to help them understand the behaviors that they're seeing and, and and help the child heal and give the child support instead of punishment and instead of shame and re-traumatization.
1: How are you bridging that gap between the traumatized children and educating parents? In what ways are you bridging that gap?
0: Yeah, so I'm a childhood trauma consultant and I... I offer webinars and trainings on trauma informed care, trauma informed practices. I like to call it trauma responsive because it's not just answers, but I actually give practical skills to people to implement with children so that they can begin to make a change right away as soon as they, you know, have taken the time to meet with me. I consult on trauma trauma informed projects and implementation. So we have a big project we're working on right now with the state of Ohio and the state of Mississippi to create a trauma a trauma informed academy for teens all the way from 14 to 26. And so we're actually going to be we're going to create like a learning management system to help understand the trauma they've experienced and learn the skills themselves to start to make a difference in their lives so that they can get this information way before I did. <laughs> you know, I had this information in my 30s, but if we can give it to people in their teen years or their early 20s, you know, imagine the difference that would make.
1: What um, practical skills are you teaching children and adults to, to heal Their trauma and to walk on the path of trauma.
0: Yeah. So thank you for asking that question. It is really about the relationship. So, compassionate relationship, empathetic relationships, safe relationships, building trust. So, I teach about how to build trust with children, and and it doesn't, it's not always intuitive if you're not taught it. But so I, I have training on. On exactly how to do that. I've developed something called the CARES model of building trust and it starts with consent. You know, if you you want to approach a child and they're upset, you know, make sure that it's okay for you to approach them first before they even get close to you. You know, if, if you're a teacher and a, and a child is having an explosive reaction to something, getting close to them might not be the right thing right now. You may need, that person may need some space. So the first step is always, you know, can I come close to you? Can I, can I sit down with you? Can I be with you here in this moment? And, you know, getting on their level. So it's, it starts with that. And then it, it goes down the line, but it's all about a compassionate, respectful response to these big emotions and how over time over time, these repetitive interactions and exchanges between people can rebuild that trust. And it's called a corrective emotional experience when it happens, and it's a beautiful thing. But say, you know, say you're a child who's experienced neglect and abuse, and you really don't trust anybody. And then you have that person who just sticks with you no matter what, and and is respectful and caring and present with you and your pain and and can hear it without trying to distract you from it. Because a lot of times adults with children, that's the first thing we do, because it's too painful to look at a child in pain. It's, it's too painful for us, the emotions it brings up. I know as a parent, like when my daughter's crying or whining or something, I'm like, oh, I just, you know, you just, it just, it's gut-wrenching. And so your first instinct is to make it stop, right? But, and so you say things, you might say things like, stop crying, there's nothing to cry about or, or you know. <laughs> Which um, is very common. Yeah, oh, so so common, so common. But what are you doing right there? You're, you're denying somebody's feelings and you're telling them to stuff it all inside. And that creates shame and that creates the message to the child that I can't have these feelings. These feelings are bad. It's, it's not okay to feel this way. And so it gets stuffed down and you stuff that down enough times and you're, you're bound to, to have some explosions. You're bound to have some, some big feelings about that down, down the road. So, you know, a lot of what I teach adults is to sit with the child in that moment. Don't try to distract them with something funny or screen or, 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 or cheering them up. You know, those are all well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong. And I've fallen <laughs> falling in, falling into that pattern many a time. So I'm not saying I never do it. But if you have the awareness to in those moments when a child is really having a strong emotional response to something going on, if you can sit with them in that and just be there and just be present, you really don't even have to say much. But just, sit there and and validate it i i can i can see how angry you are i can see how sad you are i'm gonna stay right here with you if that's okay until you're done until you can until it feels complete and it's okay to have these big feelings
1: and it requires adults and parents to or adults who are parents to have awareness compassion what if Those adults who are parents don't have compassion, self-awareness.
0: Right, well, that's that's the biggest problem is that we weren't parented this way, right? <laughs> well, at least I wasn't. You know, most people were not parented this way. So it's, it's a shift that's happening right now as we're evolving as people to understand psychology more and, and to have healthier parenting skills. But, but yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing, most people just aren't aware. And that's what I'm trying to do is, is, is to share this information as far as wide as I can so that we can change some of the patterns we've been stuck in for for a very long time and we can stop passing down because this trauma becomes generational, gets passed down from generation to generation. So my goal is to interrupt that cycle and, and break that cycle so that we don't keep perpetuating the same unhealthy behaviors down the line. And, and yeah, I mean, I think it takes a lot of inner reflection. It takes a lot of inner work. You know, we we talk so much about helping children and supporting children, but the parents, they need the help too. You your, your parent, your caregiver is the most influential person in a child's life. And so you can't just try and fix the child by sending them to therapy or to, you know, doing this or that without addressing what's going on with, with the parent too, right. because otherwise they're just going to go to therapy and then go home and, still be receiving all the same messaging, and it, it really isn't going to make that much of a difference. So that's why I like to, to teach parents about this, because it's not obvious, and it's not what we grew up with, and it's it, it's sort of a new, evolved way of looking at raising children.
1: And what I'm all... hearing you saying is that it is actually less with the children. The problem is more with the adults. Adults need to heal first, or work towards yeah. healing, and then children will pick up the behavior accordingly. Yeah.
0: Yes, because we're modeling for them all the time. Like what we say to children is never going to be as powerful as what we're modeling to the child, the way we're living our lives, the way we speak to them, the way we take care of ourselves. Those are the biggest messages that are being received. So, you know, it's not so much about this parenting skill or that parenting skill. It's how are you living your life as a parent? That's what's going to be the biggest impact on your child.
1: Yes. I was reading a bit about you and uh, I read that you help your clients understand the biological impact of trauma on the brain and autonomic nervous system. Can you describe what is biological impact of trauma on the brain and nervous system?
0: Sure. So, if you experience a trauma response to a tragic or disturbing event, your brain moves into survival mode. It moves out of the, the thinking portion of your brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, where all your executive functioning lives, where you're able to make healthy decisions and, and analyze things and learn and, and, you know, those very cognitive behaviors. That shuts down when you're overwhelmed by a trauma response, and your brain is operating from the fear center of the brain. And when you're in the fear center of the brain, your behavior will be based on surviving. And those bigger functionings, like making big decisions or analyzing what's going on around you, become secondary to keeping yourself alive. So one of my favorite analogies is if you are if you're being chased by a bear, you don't care if the the bear is a girl or a boy, if the bear is what color the bear is, what the bear's what kind of sneakers the bear has on. <laughs> you don't care about any of that stuff because all you want to do is run, right? You just want to survive. You just want to get away from that bear however you can. So like all the details don't matter so much and and paying attention to those things are aren't significant so your brain goes into that survival mode where there's bigger functionings they're just, they're just not they're just not working. And so if that happens enough time over and over again, you become like stuck in that survival mode where you' becomes your almost like a default state where you're always hypervigilant looking around for threats and not being able to pay attention to what it's being taught in class, not being able to follow directions because that's not your priority. Your priority is when am I going to see mom and dad again? Your priority is where am I sleeping tonight? Your priority is where am I getting my next meal? When you're when you've been impacted by by trauma, abuse or neglect as a child, those are the things on your mind. Not what grade am I gonna get on this math test? You I, do you see what I'm do you see what I mean there?
1: Right. Can you suggest some of the good books and resources about understanding childhood trauma? Because Everyone needs to understand what is trauma and what is trauma. Everybody has it. Not everybody has awareness about it. And trauma doesn't mean that a big thing needs to happen in your life. It could be a very small event that you are living with that experience still. So what would be the good resources and books according to you?
0: Yes. So before I answer that, I just want to add to what you just said, because I think it's so important that there is no... Nobody decides what trauma is except for you. It is a subjective experience. It's different for everybody. One event that might feel traumatizing to you might not feel traumatizing to somebody else based off of their genetic makeup, their support system, their level of resilience. You know, so everybody is going to react differently to a disturbing experience. And and so I just like to make that clear because it goes along with what you said, that we've all had trauma and it can be something that you don't even realize, or you don't think would be acknowledged as a trauma, but to you it was, and that's valid. So yeah, I just, I like to make sure I say that, but the one book, it's a, it's a, a new book came out in the last year. It's called What Happened to You? And it's written by Dr. Bruce Perry, who is one of the foremost leaders in childhood trauma and co-authored by Oprah Winfrey. And It's an amazing book that will give you a very clear understanding of trauma and how it impacts children and and adults. So I I highly recommend that book. It's it's fabulous.
1: So if someone wants to walk towards their healing, so first step is going to be therapy. And uh, what would be the other steps to get awareness and walk along this path?
0: Yeah, obviously, you know, mental health. Care is cr- critical towards healing, and again, that word healing—I say it loosely because I don't know that we ever fully heal from from trauma. But we learn how to live with it. We learn how to cope with it. We learn how to function better and live a meaningful life. But, but I don't know if we ever fully get over these things or, or close the chapter yes, on so. them completely. Anyway, <laughs> to go up on a tangent, but so yeah, so I think you know. It's it's really about building trust with yourself because what's been broken is your trust. When you have a trauma, your trust and safety in the world around you and the people who are supposed to care for you is damaged and it's it's broken and and we need to start rebuilding it. One of the ways that you can rebuild trust with yourself is by making a very small commitment to yourself each day, you know, for each day for say a month and follow through on it and what you end up doing is teaching your brain that you can trust yourself because even your trust in yourself gets broken down through these experiences.
1: Can um, you suggest any activity to build trust with yourself?
0: Yeah. So it could be something as simple as I'm going to take a walk every day, maybe start off even smaller than a month. Maybe you say, I'm going to get up and take a walk every day this week, no matter what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up at 6am and I'm going to go for a 20 minute walk, Every single day, no matter what the weather, no matter what this, no matter that, and then do it. And when you get to that end of that week, you're going to have more trust in yourself because you've, you've seen that you can commit to yourself, to to yourself's well being Same thing you could do like making your bed. I'm going to make my bed every single day this week. It could be I'm going to go to the gym every single day, like a self-care, something that's something that is a compassionate, loving thing to do for yourself and your body. Over time, your brain will begin to feel safer within itself. You know, you'll you'll start to feel safe within your body because you recognize that you're taking care of yourself. You're putting your needs first, which oftentimes we don't do, especially if there's been a trauma. So yeah, that's the first step: is is trying to find ways to be committed to yourself by not hurting yourself, by staying away from people who hurt you, by eating healthy and and Exercising, you know, t- taking care of you because that's what that's what's been broken—that that trust, not only with others but with yourself.
1: Beth, you have mentioned about meaningful life a couple of times, so I'm curious to ask you: What does a meaningful life mean to you?
0: To me, a meaningful life means being able to share your knowledge with the world to make it a better place. I know that sounds so cliche, but I really just want to leave the the world a little bit better than than I came into it. I don't know if that's even possible, but I'm going to try my hardest. <laughs> but I I feel like through education and through psychology and through mental health awareness, we can make a really big leap in our generation with understanding and where all this is coming from and by treating our children differently than past generations and yeah, to me that's that's the that's finding meaning is is using your life in some way to make a positive impact.
1: Yeah, and I'm wondering when you have a lot going on in your life and life has thrown you a curveball or you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed, what do you do with your toolkit and training to ground yourself?
0: Yeah, I mean sometimes I I go to therapy, so that's my my outlet. I always Kind of, I go in and out of it at different times, but if I'm going through a hard time, I get back into seeing my therapist, and and that really grounds me and helps me work through whatever might be going on. Reaching out to a friend, you know, having a heart to heart with a girlfriend or, you know, a friend or family member and, and just letting them know what I'm struggling with and having that support is really impactful for me. Spending time in nature and getting fresh air and sunlight and spending time in the trees, you know, going for walks in the woods. Nature is incredibly grounding and healing for me. Yeah, those are the three main things.
1: Yes, and can you tell us a bit about your book, A Grand Family for Sullivan, if I pronounce the name correctly?
0: Yes, you did. You did. A Grand Family for Sullivan is... My other child, (laughs) my other baby. This book was inspired by the kinship families I worked with as an in-home therapist with the foster kinship and adoptive families. And what I found was a large portion of my caseload at that time were grandparents raising their grandchildren. And they inspired me with their love and their strength to want to provide more resources for them because there's really just nothing. There was At the time, there was nothing available. One of the ways I connect with my families initially is through books, especially with children. Books are a wonderful bridge to into a child's life and to help talk about some really hard experiences that you might not have words for yourself. And so I wanted to write a book that would be useful for children being used by their grandparents and, and also give language to the adults to be able to talk about these hard things. Because that's that's another thing that kind of stops the the growth process is that if you don't know the truth about your life, how do, you, how do you move forward? How do you heal if you don't even know what's going on in your life? So the book is a tool for social workers, counselors, teachers, grandparents, foster parents, regular parents to talk about different family dynamics. And inside the book, there is a mindfulness theme and that it teaches through the story, it implements some mindfulness skills for the children who are reading it about breathing and, and taking a break to pause and then using the clouds as a way to let our feelings come and go. And then in the, back of the very back of the book, I share some guidance for the adults and for the um, professionals who might be working with children being raised by their grandparents or in foster care to, to help guide them a little bit therapeutically.
1: Can you please describe more on using the clouds to understand emotions? What is that?
0: Oh, yeah. So this was really helpful for me when I was struggling with my anxiety and panic attacks. I, I learned about picturing your feeling as though it were a cloud in the sky passing you by and so that's what feelings are you know they they come and they go and you can imagine that your whatever hard difficult feeling you're experiencing is on a cloud up in the sky it's coming closer to you and then it's over you and then it eventually passes by and kind of fades off into to nowhere and then you know another cloud comes along into your into your being and it might be a different emotion but that feelings they never stay very long and they're temporary and and they change they can change quickly they can change slowly but they always change and that really helped me in my process of understanding my feelings and and quieting my anxiety so i i wanted to share that with children as well
1: yes thank you for doing the amazing work in this world Beth. thank so- you I have asked my guests in the past about how they define trauma because everyone has different definitions of trauma. So, how would you define trauma?
0: Sure. So, the way I define it, trauma is an emotional response, disturbing or overwhelming experience. So, it's your emotional response. Whatever emotional response that you have to an overwhelming experience is the trauma. That's my my definition.
1: Can you give us an easier example of this?
0: Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not necessarily the event that, you know, we we tend to, and even myself, like until recently, I feel like I always saw it as the trauma as the event, right? The car accident or the or the abuse that took place. But as we dig into this deeper, what we're finding is that some, like I said earlier, some people are traumatized by the event and some people aren't. So what is it then? Right. It gets hard to define it. And so I feel that a more accurate definition is that it's, it's our natural emotional response to the event. Meaning like, if you, if you experience an overwhelming event and you, you run and you, you, hide and you you know or you shut down that's that fight flight or freeze response and so if you have that response to the event that's the trauma does that make sense
1: it does make sense so trauma is something that happens inside of you Mm -hmm. what to you so beth we have covered a lot of good grounds over here and is there anything else we could have explored and we didn't get a chance
0: No, I I think that's it. Really. I just, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to me today and to have me here with your audience. I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I love what you're doing to try and make the world a better place.
1: Thank you so much for your time. And before we wrap up, I want to ask you, where can people find you online or anywhere in the world?
0: Yeah, sure. So the fastest way to find me is bethtyson.com. On there, you'll see links to all my social media. I'm very active on social media. And I have a private Facebook group for improving family emotional well-being called Emota Minds. And, And that is where I also share a lot of Of my my expertise and my own personal stories is in that group. So feel free to join us over there or to connect with me anywhere on social media. And you can, again, find that on my website at bethtyson.com.
1: All right. Any final thought, any parting, closing thought, any recommendation?
0: No, I think we really covered so much that I feel pretty satisfied with all we've gotten to today. And I'm just, again, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you. Thank you moment. so
1: much. I'm grateful yeah. to be able to talk to you as well. All right. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You've got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can and thank you so much again.